Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow and Serious Trouble, the first episode of Serious Trouble of 2013. Happy New Year, Ken. Happy New Year, Josh. It's been a good new year for some people. It's not such a good new year so far for some other people. Uh, George Santos has a very good new job. Uh, His new job pays $174,000 a year, which I suspect is the highest salary he has ever earned. He is prominent. He's frequently on national television. Uh, He has real power in that he is a a member of the most powerful legislature in the world. So I'd say that George Santos is one of the people who is having quite a good 2023 so far. Well, you know, uh, my argument is irrefutable, Ken. (laughs) First of all, I just want to say... I said that every time a hero falls, every time a Michael Avenatti goes to jail for the rest of his life, America brings us someone new. And you (laughs) doubted me. You were a doubter, Josh. And here we have George Santos springing up as our new figure to follow and talk about. And I just that's that's why I love America, Josh. It's always going to give us people like this. So George Santos, Ken points out rightly that while there are many things that are going well in George Santos's life, there are a couple of things that are not going so well. You've all certainly read the very amusing stories about him lying about basically everything. He said he worked at Goldman Sachs. He said that he was in all of these like, lucrative businesses, that he had a college degree and all of these things. And it seems like basically everything he's claimed about his life uh, has been false. He also doesn't even appear to live at the address uh, that he had been claiming to live at, although it looks... It looks like he lives elsewhere in New York State. So it's he, he might live outside his district. That's embarrassing. That's not illegal. It doesn't invalidate his election, but it's, it's not a great set of facts. And then also there's this weirdness that George Santos, who never worked at Goldman Sachs, who worked in a Dish Network call center, seemed to have quite a bit of financial difficulty uh, through the early parts of his adult life. He was sued multiple times by landlords for non-payment of rent. And yet suddenly... He came into a large amount of money such that he was able to lend $700,000 to his ultimately successful congressional campaign. And one of the questions is, where the hell did all that money come from? And so he says he's in the capital introduction business. He introduces rich people who want to sell things like yachts to rich people who want to buy things like yachts. And that he does that on the basis of all of his powerful connections that he had as a banker at Goldman Sachs and all those sorts of things, except, oh, he never worked at Goldman Sachs. It's unclear why George Santos would know anybody who owns a yacht. Um, and so it seems unlikely that his story of where his money came from is true. And so, you know, there's political trouble. Some people would like George Santos to resign. It seems unlikely that he will even be a candidate for re-election in 2024. But one question people have is, to what extent is this a legal story? Uh, Lying about having gone to college is not a crime. What are some things that George Santos did that might be crimes? Well, he said a lot of stuff that appears to be false. And most of that, as you suggest, is probably not a crime and also probably not something he can be sued over. You might recall we talked about something sort of similar when Donald Trump was asking for money to challenge the 2020 election. And there were serious questions about whether that's where the money was actually going. And I pointed out that in general, authorities are reluctant to prosecute people over campaign type lies and statements about their background, what they're going to do, that type of thing. But where the government is absolutely interested is when you lie about campaign finance, when you lie about where the money came from that you're using in your campaign, where you lie on the various forms you had to file with the government talking about how your campaign is financed and what donations you got and from whom. So 
if uh, George Santos was in the capital introduction business, perhaps by introducing rich people who wanted to buy a congressman to a poor person <laughs> who wanted to be a congressman, um, then that could very well be criminal. The question is, did he, in any statements to the government uh, related to campaign filings, lie about the source of funds? That's a crime if he did. Yeah. So there's a couple of sets of disclosures that he would have had to have made. Some of them are personal financial disclosures about the nature of his income and that sort of thing. And the other are disclosures about his campaign's finances and, you know, who gave them what amounts of money. And so conceivably, if he made false statements in either of those contexts, that could be a crime. The other thing is, you know, the the mysterious source of this large six-figure donation that he made to his own campaign. You know, sometimes you see people getting in trouble for straw donations. This seems like it may be an issue surrounding Sam Bankman-Fried, where, you know, you're only allowed to give you know, a, l- a bit less than $3,000 to a congressional campaign, for example. And if you go to your kid or your your, fr- your neighbor or whoever and say, here, I'm going to give you this $2,000 and I want you to turn around and give it to this congressional candidate, that's a crime. And so similarly, if someone gave you money to finance your congressional campaign and you turned around and put it into your own congressional campaign, that could be a similar campaign finance crime. It wouldn't just be the false statement. Um, and the false statements could be crimes, but also the very fact of the donations itself could also be crimes. Right. I mean, the, the government has a fairly robust array of tools to use here from the plain vanilla false statements in a matter of the government to various specialized campaign finance laws that prohibit lying on particular forms or concealing the true nature of a donation or its source or that type of thing. Daniel Goldman, who's the new congressman from Lower Manhattan in downtown Brooklyn, and who previously uh, was the the lead counsel for House Democrats in the first impeachment of Donald Trump, um, he was on Twitter uh, in December suggesting that, you know, in addition to the possibility that George Santos made false statements to the Federal Election Commission, that he could conceivably be charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States. So what is that offense? And is that the sort of thing that George Santos should worry that he might be charged with? My response is, Congressman, just say RICO if you mean RICO. Uh, so he's overcomplicating things. Uh, yes, the, the plain vanilla federal conspiracy statute makes it a crime to conspire to commit a federal crime. And we've seen that all the time in the cases we talk about or to conspire to defraud the United States government. Now, usually that's defraud the United States government of money or property. So like like you're a doctor and you file Medicare claims for procedures you didn't actually do. Exactly. Something like that. Uh, But there is a small area where there are theories where you could defraud the United States by obstructing its correct operation. Uh, And maybe you could do that by false filings in a matter in which the government's interested. I could see how you could stretch to use that for a bunch of false FEC filings, but it's too complicated. Uh, You've got this novel legal theory. It's not a harsher crime. It's a gentler crime. Uh, And there's really no reason to get fancy when you've got, you know, good old dependable 18 USC 1001 for false statements to the government does its job. But so if you were to bring that overly complicated charge, it would be about false statements, for example, on a federal election commission filing. It would not be that he defrauded the United States by telling voters that he had a college degree and worked at Goldman Sachs. 
Yeah, that would not work. That's okay. not something that's, uh, you know, one would argue that lying to the uh, population about what you're going to do and where you've been is uh, established, uh, cherished American tradition. <laughs> and it's not really, it's defrauding the voters, not the, the, the operation of the government of the United States. No, if there's some daylight on that theory, it's that the government's operation is carefully monitoring campaign finance and you obstructed that by lying to them. But again, it's too fancy. Because the the underlying act here that you could bring that around would itself be a criminal act as part of the theory of this crime. So you might as well just charge the underlying act. Yeah, or or charge plain vanilla conspiracy to violate that federal crime. Okay. Going with this weird defraud the government theory is is um, just overcomplicating it for no good reason. So what would prosecutors do at this point? Because we, we know federal prosecutors are looking at this. You also have prosecutors in both Nassau County and Queens County who've said that they're investigating him. His district is split between those two jurisdictions. What would you do here if you're a prosecutor? You've seen all these news reports um, about all of this shady behavior, some of which seems like it could possibly with, be within a criminal realm. What do you do to start investigating that? Well, you're going to follow the money. You're going to subpoena the bank records. You're going to f- find out what he did with money, and then you're going to trace it back to where he got it from. And then when you find out where he got it from, what accounts, you're going to subpoena the bank records for those accounts, and you're going to start interviewing and shaking the trees to find out who those people are. And uh, you're going to interview people to, for instance, foreclose the possibility that he earned the money. You know, you're going to talk to people that he allegedly earned it from and find out what he did to earn it. Things like that. This is relatively straightforward in terms of investigations because, I mean, for someone suddenly just to have 700 grand lying around when, you know, before they were resorting to lying about, oh, I'm sorry, I got mugged on my way to pay my back rent and that's why uh, I don't have the money. That's a big change and a pretty big red flag. And I think they're, they probably feel pretty confident they're not going to have to travel too far to find out that $700,000 is not what it's represented to be. So what do you do if you're George Santos right now? Because, I mean, we, we talk sometimes about these situations where there's a conflict between your legal objectives and your non-legal objectives. I mean, George Santos, in theory, is still a politician. Voters and reporters and, and even his co-partisans have a lot of questions for him about all of the stuff that he lied about, which includes some of the things that are in the zone that the government could be looking at. And he's been doing media interviews, trying to defend himself, not very well, but in, includes answering questions about exactly what's the what the nature of his business is and where his money came from. Presumably, answering those sorts of questions you might feel is necessary to protect your political position, but could be hazardous in the context where you could end up being indicted. Yeah. And I mean, he's there have been some reports that he said that he's not going to run for re-election. Yeah. But I mean, uh, who, who would trust him on that? Uh, like, you know, if this guy who lied about everything walks into Kevin McCarthy's office, obviously Kevin McCarthy has bigger problems this week, but walks into his office and says, don't worry about me. I'm not going to run again. I won't be trouble in 2024. I mean, you can't take that to the bank. He could turn around a year from now and decide, hey, I, you know, actually, it turns out I'm a really good congressman. And I'm going to run again. But even in the modern Republican Party, I think that this level of uh, craziness is probably a little radioactive. It's radioactive for him to get committee assignments and and respect and cooperation in the House. And I, I think that he's not going to have the power he dreamed of because he's become so radioactive. So because of that— It's been pretty funny watching the House of Representatives this week with this chaotic speaker vote because you keep seeing shots of George Santos in the back looking at his phone, not socializing like everybody else in there. 
is. It's very awkward. It doesn't look like he's really integrating himself into the, the, the great legislative body of which he is now a member. No, no. It looks like people are kind of staying away from him. There's this <laughs> uh, this well of emptiness around him, like he just spent 50 bucks at Taco Bell or something. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, it's a little sad. Uh, he yeah. really seems to be someone who got caught in the moment, got caught in a weird political moment where someone like him could get elected and just got in over his head and now is in real big boy trouble and uh, is going to have an unpleasant time of it. So I think that this is not a situation where like he can plausibly hope to preserve political power like, you know, a Donald Trump or something. This is a situation where if he's smart, he's going to be disaster mitigating. And one thing he might do, and Josh, this is something you suggested, is that he might use resignation as a bargaining chip in negotiation with the government to get a more lenient outcome. Right. So, I mean, if if, if he were trying to maximize his legal outcomes, I assume that you would encourage him to lay low and not do media interviews, but also not leave office. Because, I mean, often when you have investigations, especially related to, you know, improprieties that are in some way related to the office, one of the things that prosecutors will look for from the target of the investigation, who is an office holder, is that the office holder agrees to resign the office, um, which you can't offer the government if you've already resigned the office. It's this sort of perverse incentive to sink your claws into the office that you hold and not leave it. Exactly. And so, I mean, it would be typical for an investigation of campaign finance fraud to last years. This one may be sort of dumb enough to go very quickly. Um, and in that case, you know, he might be in the position to offer up that bargaining chip very soon. Let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried, speaking of investigations that seem to be proceeding unusually quickly. Sam Bankman-Fried is back from the Bahamas. He's in the United States. Uh, and there was an agreement uh, between the United States government and Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried agreed to waive extradition. The one prison in the Bahamas, Fox Hill Prison, is no picnic, even though he was being held in the medical ward, which sounded better than other places one might be held at Fox Hill Prison. It sort of made sense that he would want to deal to get him out of Bahamian prison. Uh, and the government agreed, part of this inducement for him not to fight the extradition, that they will that they would agree to bail for him once he got back to the United States. So he appeared in court in New York, and then he was released essentially to the custody of his parents. He's confined to their home in Palo Alto, California. And so we saw these pictures of him at John F. Kennedy International Airport in the, uh, uh, it was either the United or the, Amer- it was the American Lounge. Um, and then him in business class on an American Airlines A321 um, on his way to, to San Francisco. Uh, he's now, I mean, he's not free. He's in his parents' house and he had to post $250 million bail, but like kind of not really. Can, can you explain what the, what the nature of that bail agreement is? Sure. Um, you're talking about a signature bond that's only partially justified. Now, here's what that means. A signature bond is just signing a bond that says, if I flee or break the law while I'm out on bail, I have to pay X dollars. And if you have sureties, like his parents in this case, that's them signing on and saying, if this guy flees or breaks the law while he's on bail, we have we are you know also liable for X dollars. Justification is when you have to put up 
some amount of money or property to back it. So this particular bond was required to be backed by all the equity in his parents' house, which is probably millions of dollars. It's a house in Palo Alto that they bought decades ago for not much. I'm sure it's probably $5 million or more in equity, but um, it's nowhere near $250 million. So he also had to come up with uh, two people, uh, rich people of means, to also sign the signature bond to say, we'll be on the hook for this money. Uh, now, realistically, nobody, the government's not getting $250 million if he flees because none of the people involved have that unless he hit up Elon Musk or something. And so it's it's just supposed to be a gigantic deterrent. It's a statement, basically, we're going to completely destroy your parents' lives um, if you flee or, you know, commit a crime while you're out on release and that type of thing. It reflects, though, given the numbers that are at issue here, the billions of dollars, and given the, that he had to be extradited from another country, a high level of confidence from the government that they're going to be able to keep tabs on him. And, and I, I should note for listeners, uh, Ken wrote a useful blog post about this around Christmas, about how it was possible for Sam Bankman-Fried to get bail. That went out to the Serious Trouble email list. Uh, if you're someone who only listens to the show through a podcast player and doesn't see the emails, um, you can see a, a more detailed explanation of, of how it was even possible for this agreement to come about uh, if you go to SeriousTrouble.show uh, and look for that post. Uh, but Ken, I guess, you know, a lot of people have been really surprised about the fact that he was able to get this bail, again, because of the seriousness of the crime that you described there. And, you know, yes, I understand this is, you know, if, if he flees, that's going to financially ruin his parents and some other people who whose identities we don't know who are close to him. But Sam Bagman fried has apparently demonstrated a willingness to fuck over a lot of people already. Including to some extent his parents, who work apparently worked in the business. Who knows if they're you know what what exposure they could have here um, related to the malfeasance at, at FTX. So I like if if what we're depending on is the idea that Sam Bankman Fried won't fuck over his parents. I mean th- that's probably right, but I, I, how how confident can the the government and the judge be that that's really right? Because it's the my understanding is that in, in the federal system, you're entitled to bail if the government can come up with conditions that will protect public safety and cause you to return to court. But it sort of seems to me like an open question about whether Sam Bankman-Fried would follow this agreement, given his demonstrated dishonesty, even despite the negative consequences that a breach could have for people he is supposed to care about. Well, you're right about the the way federal bail works. There's a presumption that you get bail unless the government can demonstrate that no combination of bail conditions will reasonably assure that you'll come back for trial and not be a danger to the community. So here, the government agreeing to this was a big factor. I think he would have had a more of an uphill battle if not for the government's agreement. At least it would have been drawn out more. I think the government's confident for a few reasons. One is that he's under what's called intensive pretrial supervision, basically a, a, a pretrial services officer, which is like a pretrial probation officer, is on his ass every day, talking to him daily, visiting frequently, that type of thing. Number two, he's got an ankle bracelet and he's at home. And number three, given the scale of this case, I'm sure they've devoted resources to surveilling and keeping an actual eye on him so that he's going to find it hard to get to an airport or something like that without tripping uh, various alarms. The one thing that the government may be thinking is because of who he is, if they want him to plead, and they probably do, it might be easier if he's out because he's going to take a lot of persuading, a lot of, frankly, beating up 
by lawyers uh, to get his head in the space away from the, uh, you know, the the uh, man child couch fungus and into the area where he's. Well, he's, uh, he seems you know, to still believe clearly. not only that he might not end up in prison, but that he will rebuild his business empire. So there's there's a lot of delusion in him. Well, I'm not saying they'll succeed in getting him to that point, <laughs> but it's very hard to do that with somebody who's in jail. Uh, it's much easier to do it when they're out and you can meet with them and show them documents and things like that. But the thing is, um, they extradited him once. Uh, there's a, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money if he flees. They have a lot of protections to stop him from fleeing. And I think they probably felt a, a high level of confidence that they could prevent him from fleeing at this point. But so, I mean, the federal government just had a really high-profile failure with a situation like this, which had to do with the Fat Leonard prosecution. Fat Leonard is a Malaysian businessman who was involved in a large graft scheme uh, related to uh, American military officials in the Pacific. And he was being held under house arrest in Southern California, and he had an ankle bracelet, and he had security at the home where he was being detained uh, that was um, that, that he was paying for. And then not only did he slip away, cut off his his ankle bracelet, get out of the country and somehow end up in Venezuela, but they were like bringing a U-Haul up to his house to get his belongings out of the house as part of this process. Now, I realize this was this is very embarrassing to the federal government. They've still not gotten him back. He's still in Venezuela. But that at least seems like a, a demonstration that you can have a high profile case involving a, a lot of a lot of money and news coverage uh, and still screw up what is supposed to be this sort of intensive detention. So I guess what's what's different here? Well, we don't know everything the government knows. We don't know what other factors they may have that make them more confident. I mean, that was a case where I think the government's attention had wandered over the years uh, and they were no longer monitoring him as closely. I think that this point, I, I suspect that Sam Bankman-Fried is being monitored very closely. I think another factor may be the government's hoping that when he's out, he will continue to say stupid things that will make their case easier. Uh, and, and I think they just ultimately made a check that if he, if he agrees to extradition, uh, they'll cut months and months out of the process and, and get him here sooner. One interesting to note is that uh, one thing they held back until he was in the air back to the United States is that they had flipped his ex, the uh, head of uh, Alameda Media Research and the co-founder of FTX. So That's Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang. Right. They didn't want him to know that until he was in the air. Uh, so, you know, I, I think... It's unlikely they're going to make a huge, dumb blunder in a case this high profile. So I suspect that they have specific reasons that they're feeling confident about being able to monitor it. And that may be, you know, there may be uh, suspicious vans in uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's neighborhood uh, hanging out Hmm. uh, with tinted windows. Uh, But, uh, you know, they're watching him. Yeah, to your point about attention wandering, that Fat Leonard prosecution had been going on for years. The reason he was un- being detained in his home was it had to do with a medical furlough that had been ongoing since 2017. So that's five years or close to five years. I, I assume that there was, you know, some, a lot of cases got delayed during, during the pandemic. But so one thing we've been alluding to here is this FTX prosecution might not drag on nearly as long as some similarly complex and large dollar prosecutions, especially if they, if they managed to get him to a guilty plea. They've actually, they've set a trial date. It's supposed to go to trial in October. Is it likely if he, if he does not plead guilty that we'll actually have a trial in October? 
Uh, well, if he does not plead guilty and he wants to go to trial, it depends on the strategy. The strategy may be to push them to trial sooner, uh, although a better strategy here would probably be to delay, to hope that something better happens uh, and something shakes out. Uh, because he's right now, I mean, he's looking at all the terrible statements he's made that incriminate him with respect to this stuff. He's looking to all the financial records and emails and that type of evidence. And he's got these two top-level lieutenants who have, are cooperating against him. And that is that is a, a bad scene for him. That is not an optimistic situation, even in the context of the Feds normally being very successful at trial. One thing to, to point out is that, um, you know, his, his two Confederates who cooperated cooperated really, really early and without a particularly good cooperation agreement. Yeah, this is interesting. We were, we were looking at the cooperation agreements before, uh, before this taping with, with both Caroline Ellison and Gary Wang. Caroline Ellison was the CEO of Alameda Research, which was the, the affiliated business. FTX was the exchange. Alameda Research was basically a hedge fund. So she ran that. And then Gary Wang was his co-founder of FTX, the exchange. Um, and so these, these agreements, they, they agreed to cooperate with the government. They agreed to plead guilty to a number of quite serious charges. And then they don't say anything specific about what that means in terms of a deal for their sentence. It just says the government uh, will take into account the, the importance of their cooperation in making a sentencing recommendation. That doesn't seem like a great deal. I, don't you normally have some stronger indicator of you know, exactly what kind of sentence recommendation you might get in exchange for a plea? You do. There's a couple of things you want to do when you're getting a cooperation agreement. The first is you want to limit your exposure. So ideally, you want to plead to maybe just one count so you know you've got a cap of 20 years or something. Here, they didn't. I mean, if you add up the things they pled to, it's in the multi-decades that could be the rest of their lives. Uh, The other thing you want to do is specify what the sentencing calculations are going to be uh, under the U.S. sentencing guidelines, which are only recommendations to the judge, which generally tend to be the heartland of where the judge starts. So especially in white-collar cases where the sentence is going to be driven by the amount of money involved, you want to lock that down. You don't want it to be open-ended. And here, I mean, when you're talking open-ended, it could be open-ended by billions, Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially. I think we discussed the sentencing guidelines that like step up the severity of the recommended sentence with the amount of, of money involved. They top out in the hundreds of millions of dollars. There aren't even additional tiers for this kind of enormous size of a fraud. Exactly. Something where they pled like this this early when they're represented by very competent, experienced federal criminal practitioners tells me that they think there's a super strong case. Uh, that they're screwed, and that this is, in effect, uh, the least terrible way out. So if you're in an absolutely terrible situation, you know you're completely screwed, you could wait around for months and months before you plead. But you might think, rather than doing that, why don't we start positioning ourselves as the truly contrite uh, accepting responsibility, immediately pleading out and cooperating people. So you can start building that narrative for sentencing. We didn't even wait for a deal that uh, would specify the amount of loss. We were so eager to come in and admit everything. And that's that helps your lawyer, uh, you know, hope that you get out of prison uh, before your 60s. What if you're some other person who was a senior employee at FTX? We, you, you noted that we've had these 
two very top lieutenants uh, who flipped on Sam Bankman-Fried. But there are quite a number of other people who were involved in the senior management of this company who I assume also might have exposure. I assume in addition to being bad news for SBF, this has to be bad news for the rest of them. Uh, it is. So the lower you get down on the ladder, the more complicated it is to prove that you were part of a fraudulent scheme, right? Because they have to prove your knowledge and fraudulent intent. Usually that's done with uh, your statements, whether, you know, email or whatever, and by cooperators' testimony. But it's more complicated the lower people get. So it's going to depend on what the cooperators tell them and what corroborating evidence they find in terms of emails and transactions and things like that. Also, the government you know, there, there's a diminishing return. Sooner or later, um, they stop adding people. They probably don't go beyond 10 or a dozen or something like that, even if there are more than that. So, you know, Enron, even if you could have ultimately gone after dozens of people, that's not what they do. Just because mm-hmm. they don't have the resources and they don't want it to turn into a, a fire drill or something like, you know, the the January 6th capital prosecutions where there are hundreds of them. So, but if you're if you're some of the top people, the top echelon, the top dozen, you got to be sweating pretty hard now and wondering what you've written down, what you've emailed and uh, that type of thing. Can can we talk about Scott Adams? <sighs> if we must, yes. <laughs> Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams. I believe this is the first time we will have discussed uh, Dilbert cartoonist Scott Adams uh, on this or, or any other podcast. So this is an, an exciting uh, milestone here, Ken. Take it in. Take in the excitement of this, that we get to bring Scott Adams into our universe of characters for the first time. He is the Dilbert cartoonist. He is perhaps on the trend of being better known for being sort of a public nut and crank and saying crazy things and, you know, uh, talking about having been in Mensa and all the normal uh, array of socially uh, difficult people. Careful, Ken. Don't, Don't say he's crazy. He'll sue you for defamation. No, I meant that strictly in a figurative sense. Yes. So Scott Adams has issued a uh, lawsuit threat against another cartoonist, Ben Garrison. He's going to sue Ben Garrison for being better at drawing than him. Um, No, that's actually, that's not what he's going to sue him for. Ben Garrison is this completely wackadoodle right-wing political cartoonist who who does have better technical skills than Scott Adams. But sort of part of Scott Adams' mystique is that he became one of the most successful cartoonists in the English language, despite not really having any particular skill at drawing. Uh, But so uh, Scott Adams uh, has become this sort of right-wing influencer in recent years, and he got vaccinated against COVID. And now he is being criticized by various people on the right for having done that, especially since he now has developed a more negative view about the vaccines over time as we've learned more information. And so Ben Garrison, who knew from day one that the vaccines were bad, uh, Ben Garrison has this cartoon. It's called Ilbert. It's drawn in the style of a Dilbert cartoon, but with more flair. And it says Ilbert by Clot Adams um, because of this idea that the you know, the, the vaccines are killing all these people with the blood clots, and he has Dilbert in a coffin in the top of it. So this is the sort of the, the tenor of the argument here. And it shows Dr. Anthony Fauci waving a pocket watch in front of Scott Adams's eyes and saying, obey science. And Scott Adams says, I must obey science. And it shows several syringes in his arm. And then later it shows him all angry and saying, you anti-vaxxers were right accidentally. You're still stupid. 
And this is a reference to things Scott Adams has said about how, you know, that he made the right decisions based on the information that we had ex ante. And even if he turned out to be wrong, that didn't mean that he made the wrong decision based on the information that was available. Uh, So, Ken... I, I feel dumber for having described all of that. But so there's this cartoon that Scott Adams thinks damages his reputation with the sort of right-wing readers who hate Anthony Fauci and hate the vaccine and all this stuff. Uh, and Scott Adams uh, is saying that he's uh, considering legal action against Ben Garrison for defaming him by publishing this cartoon. And so is this like, is a cartoon suggesting that you were hip- hypnotized by Anthony Fauci into getting vaccinated? Is that is that defamatory? No. And... Before we tread too far into this, you have to know that Scott Adams has a history of throwing around defamation threats on Twitter um, in not very serious circumstances. In fact, uh, like three years ago or so, when someone described him as the uh, basically the Louis Farrakhan of incel white nationalists, uh, he threatened <laughs> that person uh, with a lawsuit. And, and I did my best to explain to him why that's not defamation on Twitter. Uh, I would not characterize it as a pedagogical success, and he blocked me. Uh, but of course, that was it's figurative and hyperbole, and so it's not a provably false statement of fact. So uh, keeping in mind that he's someone who likes to throw threats around and who's basically incapable of admitting he's wrong about something, um, very invested in being the smartest guy ever. This cartoon is 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 mocking. It's mm. it's a cartoon. It's a cartoon by someone known to have extreme views and to express them in an extremely hyperbolic way. Uh, it's a uh, you know it's done in a style that does not reflect seriousness. It uses language like Ilbert and Clot Adams that does not reflect seriousness. So all of it is is basically a satire, parody, hyperbole. Scott Adams seems to think that implying that he told people to take the vaccines when that's not exactly what he said is defamatory. It's it, it's far from defamatory. It's clearly a satirical comment not meant to be taken literally. The interesting thing about this, by the way, is how good Ben Garrison is at at drawing stuff much better than Scott Adams does his own characters. Ben Garrison is an insane person, but the technical skill in this cartoon is not bad. Yeah, he's got Fauci looking like Scott Adams, pointy-headed boss. Uh, he's got uh, Scott <laughs> Adams looking like Gilbert. And he even, this is the key, uh, Ben Garrison knows how to style shift. So Ben Garrison's cartoons are characterized not only by complete insanity, but by an obsession with labeling everything. So even if you are the stupidest person in the world <laughs> and completely unfamiliar with American history or culture, you can still understand the import of the cartoon. Uh, and here he doesn't do that, which is very unusual for him. But yeah. it, it, this is a temper tantrum by a not well-adjusted person, and it is not defamation. The cartoon does contain certain factual claims, right? Now, as far as I can tell, the factual claims are true. But like you, there could be a circumstance in which a cartoon like this could be defamatory, right? Like, I mean, for example, the cartoon implies the factual claim that Scott Adams has been vaccinated, right? I don't think that's purely a statement of opinion. Isn't that, a, isn't that a factual claim there? Now, again, that, that factual claim seems to be true. But for example, if, you know, if Scott Adams had not been vaccinated and saying that he'd been vaccinated was going to damage his reputation with certain anti-vax fans that he has, could that in theory be defamatory if you, if you had a cartoon expressing that? It, 
in theory, but I don't think this is specific enough to imply a false fact about that. Again, you have to look at the thing as a whole and how it expresses it. This has him looking like Dilbert with swirling crazy eyes saying, I must obey science with three syringes in his arm and a very cutting reference to his uh, his ex-girlfriend uh, an attractive fo- uh, photo in the background. Uh, so <laughs> no one would take that as him saying literally that or really literally anything. They take it as a comic exaggeration of what his stance had been uh, because you couldn't look at that and say, okay, well, n- uh, this factually means that he got three vaccinations at once while drinking coffee. So if Scott Adams were to sue over this, and, and he probably won't because he has no case here and he has a prior history of making these sorts of empty threats, but if he were to sue, th- this wouldn't be inflicted on a jury, right? This would get dismissed on, on motions? Well, if he's dumb enough to sue someplace where there's an anti-slap statute, and I firmly believe that he is, uh, it would get uh, knocked out at the anti-slap stage or at the latest something like summary judgment. This is not a good case. This is a ludicrous case. And my experience with arguing with him about this back in 2019, the last time he threatened, one of the last times he threatened defamation is he's incapable of accepting that defamation law is other than what he think it should be because he is a genius (laughs) and he knows what it should be and therefore what it is. I think that's enough serious trouble for this week, Ken. What do you think? I agree. Tell us what you think of this episode. Send us any questions you have about what we've discussed here or any other serious trouble that interests you. Ken, I I can't remember. It's been a few weeks since we've taped. How can people contact us if they have questions for us about Scott Adams and Ben Garrison or, or any of the matters we've discussed today? Well, Josh, as far as I'm concerned, they're more than welcome to throw bricks through your window with a note attached. But failing that, they can reach us at ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. Or they can uh, subscribe and join the discussion on the forum and talk about the episode there. Yeah. And again, go to SeriousTrouble.show, especially if you're someone who's only been listening to this through the podcast apps. Uh, that will enable you to get any emails that come out, including that that special email that we sent out around Christmas with Ken providing that timely explanation of how the hell Sam Bankman-Fried was able to get out of jail and into his parents' multi-million dollar Silicon Valley home. So anyway, go there, sign up, listen, read. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon.